0: Welcome to episode number 28 of the Librarian's Guide to Teaching podcast. I'm Jessica.
1: And I'm Amanda.
0: And on today's episode, we are talking to Allison Head to discuss the new project information literacy report called COVID-19, the first 100 days of US news coverage. Um, It was released on September 15th, and Allison is the head researcher for this really interesting report that has great data and recommendations for librarians and educators. But before we get started with our conversation, how are you doing? Anything exciting going on?
1: Um, I'm okay. You know, still trying to adjust to um, librarianship, uh, librarianship in, in COVID. Um, <laughs> on campus one day a week. It's very strange. Um, I was on campus on Monday and had a single student. So that was a little disheartening and strange, you know, I think I only talked to one person the whole day. So that was like really weird. Um, but something interesting that's going on at my institution now is that we might be pursuing a standalone IL course. And I have such mixed feelings about it. I know some librarians feel like it's the dream. Um, but in my experience, I feel like information literacy is best taught through context of discipline. Um, so I've always, as you know, as the director of the program, I've always taken the approach of this, I wanna be integrated in the curriculum of the discipline, different disciplines, rather than just a standalone um, kind of thing. Uh, so I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, we just learned about it today, so I really don't know much about how it's gonna go, but um, it's just, I don't know, I have really mixed feelings. <laughs> What's going on with you?
0: Nothing that interesting. <laughs> Honestly, that sounds like a debacle, but I, I hope it, comes, it turns out well and you come to some kind of you know, positive conclusion on where that goes. I mean, it sounds interesting either way, so we'll see. Um, but yeah, work is, work is good. And uh, it, I think the, the best thing going on in the past couple of weeks has just been finding a way to carve out time for myself to relax which has been nice, like catching up on TV and um, reading more books and making time for things like that to to do a little more self-care. I just finished the last season of The Good Place yesterday. And I swear, it's like every season that show gets better. And they ended it perfectly in terms of not, you know, jumping the shark and going too far. So I was super happy about that. But oh my gosh, I just I want to rewatch it again, because it's just so good. Um, and then of course, I have like a huge lineup of things waiting in the wings i'm also doing the great british bake off which i'm totally late to on that i mean it's like 10 years going at this point but i mean it totally makes me want to bake and but i'm gluten free so it's like I don't have anybody to share all the things that I bake with because hello pandemic nobody's going to want to take food from a person that's not in their house so that's my that's honestly my biggest dilemma right now is how do I get a, a scale to weigh all the grams because I know that that's the best way to the most accurate way to actually bake I'm learning and who do I feed my food to
1: <laughs> because I want to bake everything <laughs> oh yeah yeah that does sound like a challenge i've my cousin is gluten-free and vegan uh, so that was interesting making a cake once right um, that way but I've only had to do it once so I, I I can't help you there but oh my god I'm almost done with a good place too yes. I've got like three episodes left I really loved that show I didn't think I was gonna like it I avoided watching it on TV um, mm-hmm. and I found it on Netflix and I absolutely love it my husband thinks it's an odd show but like we watch it and I think it's like definitely... My taste has changed, obviously, over the years, but it's definitely something different for me, but I I really enjoy it.
0: It's so good. Yes, definitely highly recommend to anyone who has not watched it. And I just started following on Twitter. It's um, The Good Place Quotes With No Context, (laughs) and it's just little memes of different sayings from the characters, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's hilarious. It
1: sounds like so much fun. I'm definitely going to have to to look that up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, check it out. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Before we get started, here's a little info about Dr. Allison Head. Dr. Allison Head is the founder and director of Project Information Literacy, PIL, a national research institute that conducts large-scale studies on how college students and recent graduates utilize research skills, information competencies, and strategies for completing coursework, engaging with news, and solving information problems in their everyday lives and the workplace. Research findings and recommendations from PIL studies and scholarly articles have informed and influenced the thinking and practices of diverse constituencies from all over the world in higher education, public libraries, newspapers, and the workplace. Uh, Allison, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
2: Happy to be here. Thank you for asking me.
1: Oh, our pleasure. Uh, So we're going to jump right in. Could you give us, our listeners, a quick summary of the report in case they haven't um, read it yet?
2: Okay, you know, I'm happy to do that. uh, Some listeners may not know that uh, Project Information Literacy, we use the acronym PIL over here. uh, This is a new report. We have two this year the ALGO study that Barbara Pfister was on earlier, we were just talking about that, uh, came out in January. This is a different report uh, that we wanted to really create something different. Of course, COVID-19 was happening. The pandemic was taking place. And this report came out last month in September. So it's new. It's actually two reports. It's a series. These are short reports for us because they're intended to be a student reader. But PIL, if you know about it, always has a research component. So this is a, how we're categorizing this is the topic is the first hundred days of U.S. news coverage about the COVID-19 crisis in the U.S. And the first report looks at the shape of news, which is the dissemination if you're a communication scholar, that will that will resonate with you. In the second report, we wanted to dive in more deeply to something that a lot of librarians don't discuss that uh, I, I think has a real role in thinking about information literacy, and that's visual literacy. And we talked about visual messaging in the second report. So these are short reads. They're intended... As a reader for students, we as a team, there were five of us, as a team, we just to kind of give you the thinking behind it, we did this in four to five months. And uh, we have a new fellow who's in information design who did beautiful figures and tied those into learning resources that were produced by two well-known instruction librarians Elena Bull from UW Tacoma first year experience librarian and then Margie McMillan who's retired from Mount Royal but a senior researcher for us so to sum up really what this what these reports are are about these are just some three things to think about and way how they may have value for you in your own teaching the reports are about uh, really asks this question of, how did the coronavirus outbreak become one of the biggest stories of all time? Maybe the biggest story of the century. Of course, the election hasn't happened yet, so I could actually be scooped by saying that. Uh, And specifically looking at, thinking about it in very current terms, um, thinking about how news flows across digital spaces and across time, Now, from the information literacy, I think it's important to frame it up this way, from an information literacy point of view, we really want to look at how visuals and text shape our understanding literacy. This will definitely resonate with maybe how you're thinking about this. We want to look at how media messages, the written word and visual storytelling, influence what we see, what we learn, and what we think, and ultimately, who we are. The last piece here and I, the engaging visuals, the learning resources, which are guidance really for librarians to use in the classroom, uh, both as slides we produce those, Barbara Pfister helped contribute to those as well as uh, the learning resources and some ideas to use for each one of these reports. So the audience is students primarily But also, it's a useful resource for librarians. We were thinking of the hectic librarian that comes back this fall and says, what do I do in my classroom? How do I talk to faculty about this? Nobody has time to really do an analysis like we did of 125,696 articles in those first 100 days using Media Cloud. So the last piece here, and I just want to touch on it, and then we can go to the next question. Something that we talked about a lot in discussions in framing up this report, because we felt like we were in new territory and creating a different kind of OER, was how could students learn a flip of media literacy? How could students learn to reclaim their own information agency? And by that, we mean we amp this up this message that you often say, well, you don't know, need to know how to navigate the news landscape. We said you really need to, to know how to exert control over just the onslaught of news, the news tsunami, as we end up calling it, the report, streaming at you from all these sources. So we dove in, looked at 66 sources, news websites, a variety of sources over those first 100 days, January 1 to April 9, 2020, and then talked about these concepts uh, within that. So if listeners are interested in visual messaging, and data supporting it, as well as the shape of news, as well as reclaiming information agency, then I think this series might be for you.
0: Yeah, I really love that idea of information agency because I think we have kind of gotten to a point where we've spent so many years teaching students how to evaluate individual sources, but we're seeing that that's no longer sufficient. And we have to give them back a lot more information agency and and explain how to really understand what the landscape looks like and how all the parts interconnect to one another. Um, and I think definitely a lot of the questions had, in the learning resources, had me thinking of ways that I could um, adapt them to kind of do that in the classroom. So I'm looking forward to using the report more now that I've read it. <laughs> Some
2: librarians, and we encourage you know, listeners too, um, to reach out to me at allison at I know it sounds like I'm raising money for one of the elections, but uh, no, to reach out for, to me um, about how you're using it in the classroom, how students are responding to it. Because figure one, which is an amazing line chart that Stephen Braun, who teaches at Northeastern did, that's highly interactive. And then Margie McMillan did a layer as a librarian of news study and news stories from a variety of, newspapers the top 12 that really peaked at different times that show the shape of news and um, you know it's really what you're saying Jessica if we think about teaching news literacy or information literacy pulling up like 30,000 feet and looking at the shape of news um, that's an incredible skill for both us to have in the field Um, and faculty to have to think about their field that way, Um, but also for students to be able to feel like they have a better understanding of how that story developed, how it peaked, and why we have a narrative timeline in that first report as well that shows what those peaks are and keeps coming back to the figure. The figure, figure one that Stephen Braun designed for us, which really is amazing, um, is woven in to the actual exercises that are in the learning resources that are part of the landing page, so that students can do their own deep dive around the news and experience it. So we made it highly interactive and engaging. That was the goal.
0: So this kind of leads into our next question, which is, you know, what are some of the specific strategies for talking to students about news and this, this complex current landscape, you know, I kind of said it but is it really enough to just teach fact checking and the crap test and you know especially for one shot, one shot sessions which are very limited or even multiple one shots or workshops you know how do we even accomplish this in this method that unfortunately so many librarians have to deal with
2: yeah i you know i i, I the crap test for what it was worth Sarah Blakesley and her colleagues up at Chico State University end up cr- producing something that really does cause us to think about evaluation differently. It gives us a framework, um, uh, the ability to teach it in a way and reach students that we didn't have before. But at the same time, and I'll come back to that because it's, it's relevant here. At the same time, social media starts, Facebook launches, though it may seem like we've been living with social media for a long time. We have it, and um, I think that's changed the arc of and the strategies that are used, as we all know, for news, but also for information, because it is another dimension. I think there's some other variables too since 2010 that has have changed this. And the uh, you know, let me back up for a second. The crap test is this evaluation strategy which most listeners probably know because it's taught so widely. And it's still taught of looking at org versus com, are sites professionally made. um, And it's kind of gotten a bad rap in recent years. Mm -hmm. And um, when I looked back at the 2010 study that we conducted with over 8,300 students, a huge survey, it was our biggest survey ever at PIL. It's our most cited resource, truth be told. A lot of people know it a lot of people still rely on it be careful there because that's an old study for 2010 I'm critiquing my own research here. <laughs> um, but what we found in that study is students really reflected a lot of those crap criteria um, they talked about when they evaluated websites thinking in terms of their gut feeling they could tell whether it was professional the use of color a lot of the things that the crap tests were teaching students at the time ta- at the time and at the time people were thrilled students are thinking this deeply through that lens of the crap test but i think what what needs to be recognized is not only the impact of social media um news content has multiplied mm-hmm. um, and news in our in our 2018 study, we talk about this where students just feel inundated. Um, something that came up in that study that Margie McMillan, senior researcher at PIL, and a great colleague and I talk, was on that study as well, and we talked about this a lot as a librarian, um, is this rise of breaking news of Um, everything's important. I mean, the next time you sit down and watch news, whatever station that is, they'll always have that up on the screen, breaking news. If you pull up a news digest, it's always packaged as breaking news. Really, there can't be that much breaking news. I'm older than you, but when (laughs) I was a kid, there was the Kennedy assassination. That was breaking news. Watergate was breaking news. It wasn't something that, the, that, that journalists used freely and they do now, especially as that landscape has become more and more populated and more and more competitive as newsrooms are shrinking. And journalism, we touch a lot about this in the series is um, newspapers, news websites were in this unique position of being in high demand, getting more hits than they had ever gotten, but their newsrooms were shrinking. Ad revenues were plummeting because of the COVID-19. So even from a journalism perspective, if you work with journalism faculty, this is an interesting chapter in the journalism industry that some argue uh, maybe its demise. But let me just touch on a couple of things here. I've, I've got a lot to say, so keep me on, on the time. But <laughs> I think... I think you need to think more broadly when you think about, gee, you can say, yeah, it's the impact of social media that makes the crap, the crap criteria, or even what we were looking at in 2010, I'll critique myself, um, there was no social media, there wasn't this abundance of news sites. Um, there wasn't this rise of breaking news, which in our 2018 news study, how students engage with news, which again was almost 6,000 students in that study that Knight Foundation and ACRL funded, um, we found students were really worn down. Something that Margie and I talked about a lot and chased in follow-up interviews was how much work news was for students. And um, there's a great quote. I always think of this in terms of evaluation. Probably my favorite quote out of the news study from 2018 was: "I spend more time trying to find an unbiased site than I find than I than I spend on reading the news that I find." <laughs> and you can see how conditioned they are. Uh, we heard a lot. This will warm the hearts of librarians that that teach lateral reading or even somebody like Sam Weinberg at Stanford, who's talked a lot and published about lateral reading and comparing different resources. This is something students do naturally. You can look at their GPA, the C student, the B student does this as well. It's just the fact of living in this just overcrowded news universe. Um, and And I think where social media has an impact in, when we talk about this in this COVID study, which is a great case study, really, if you think about this new series, the, you know, the craziest news situation possible. And um, A, how do you reclaim your information agency? Um, you know, at the same time, we look at how does social media amplify and manage our attention around certain news stories and visuals so it came together nicely.
0: (laughs) Right yeah I think a lot of the examples from the report could be used um, you know to to teach a little more um, structured lateral reading and a little more about the um, news landscape and um, context and and some of what the students were asking of I spend so much time looking for sources that are unbiased. I think some of the examples from the report could be used to maybe uh, help them solve that concern.
2: Right. And and how to weigh uh, it? Um you know, it's a it's a really exciting study. Um I think one of my favorite things because I taught for 25 years. So and and I was a new media professor before I started PIL. But um you know, one of the exciting things here as a team that excited us was that the first hundred days is this year. We're not talking about uh, a news event that anybody didn't follow um, in a course and it's international and it has impact on business, public health, students, and discrimination, uh, as well as businesses discriminated, people of color, Asians, um, and we do touch on that in our narrative timeline, but also entertainment. NCAA, you know, the the March Madness is put off. Um, you know, it touches every aspect. Tom Hanks um, and his wife Rita Wilson. You know, mm-hmm. no matter what your interest is, there's it's the story that has a news angle. There's something for everyone. Right. That happened on March 12th, actually. We were able to pinpoint the something for everyone stage. And that's what the shape of news and taking a finite time and doing a huge analysis can tell you.
1: Yeah, that's, it's very interesting. I love that, that you can relate it to every different aspect of life because I teach so many different classes and, and like you just said, because it touches so many aspects, I can, you know, teach it in a liberal arts course, and I can talk about it in a management and a business course, and it still has the, you know, the context to be appropriate. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to start that. I haven't had an opportunity yet to kind of weave it into my instruction, um, but we'll see.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good sell. Um, you know, no matter who you reach out to as faculty, because there's always an angle and I would maintain our lives are so touched by COVID-19, whether it's your parents getting laid off or, you know, whatever cause or, you know, God forbid somebody in your family getting sick or even worse dying. It's touched every single aspect of our life. And, uh, you know, the, just the uniqueness of it, um, of this actual news event, makes it great that librarians actually have this series, which is really what we wanted to do. I kind of considered it a gift to the profession. If I was, you know, on the ground in the profession as a librarian, wherever, I mean, the last school I was at was Harvard. You know, how do you sell that? to a faculty member. I think it's a it's a pretty compelling argument that this is a part of every single aspect of life. Nobody's been untouched on the globe.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I hope to see that librarians find ways to weave it into their one shots, but also maybe consider larger workshops where they can maybe invite a panel of maybe business professors, you know, health professors, and you know, talk about it in, in that way. I think that was also another way to engage the students um, that I hope to see maybe down the road, um, especially at in my institution.
2: You know, I've got to say, Amanda, I um, I don't think it's that far down the road. I'm I'm doing. I just got my questions for my panel that I'm doing next week. <laughs> that is a campus wide panel around right. this particular study in media literacy. Um, and then I have another one that I'm working on. So um, we're faculty from the campus, and they're pulling me in to really talk about the news engagement study as well as this study. And, you know, it, it's compelling. You can do it with Zoom, and you can encourage students to attend.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that sort of segues into our next question for librarians. Um, You know, speaking of you saying it, this is a a gift to the profession. Um, From, you know, the work that you've done in this report, how has COVID opened up opportunities for librarians to really address, you know, scholarship as a conversation, as well as science literacy terms of the scientific method, the academic publishing process, and the value of information?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, again, it's the fascinating case study um, in the sense of um, if you do think of this ACRL tenet of scholarship as conversation, which may be my favorite <laughs> one, around communities of practice. And I know when I taught, um, talking to students about how knowledge gets created, and that's so foreign for students. Um I remember if you critiqued a reading, students would say, but why did you choose it? And you know, you could say, because there was nothing else. But it would be a good paper to write. There are gaps. And I think that the whole news coverage, as well as just coverage in general, um, really does show the the velocity of news, the velocity of knowledge and how it gets developed. Um, it it really does pierce the veil in such profound ways um, that we're kind of unimaginable. As an example, if somebody had asked me two years ago, "Well, what would be the ultimate thing to talk about around scholarship as conversation?" Um, and I think sciences in particular. Um, I know in past studies when we've interviewed students that are scientists in science majors. Um, on the news study, for instance, they said, see, I'm an expert. I can watch the news. And I know science doesn't move that quickly. They don't have a cure for cancer. It wouldn't be breaking news. Mm -hmm. And they had um, a certain amount of information agency given their particular nature. And um, I think what we get here is a snapshot of how with the COVID story, as we call it, Um, With the COVID story, you get a snapshot of a couple of different things, how science works under pressure, which um, you just don't see, and also the transparency. Um, I think also, um, I don't know how much the vendors will like this, but you see the, um, but everybody picks on them, so I'll I'll line up here, but the (laughs) the failure of peer review as a process. I write in peer-reviewed journals, but I also write our reports um, with my team at PIL. And mainly, we issue reports because of how quickly things change. And so in a way, if you think about PIL, I mean, we do internal peer review, but we do it very quickly, like in a week. And we go through many, many, many drafts. And we have a lot of editors on different reports. So I'm not saying we give it short shrift. But, um, I, you know, I think what you find here is that you're seeing the kind of how um, peer review, the peer review process didn't work here, so much so that science went to preprints which is you know really out there for them they're usually not that transparent there's been there was a great article in fast company about this movement towards open science where the public where we all know how science is developed and then somebody has to kind of walk it back and say this wasn't accurate at the same time really, how do we even discover this? I have a, a really good friend from college who is a vet and a science person. And she said, we're never gonna resolve this unless we have the genome. She said that in, she said that in January. She said, we need that damn genome. And um, sure enough, um, some Chinese uh, scientists shared that information. And, and that was a story I think Bloomberg covered at first, Um, that changed how different countries in Asia could see how quickly this virus was spreading. And if you follow the study, you got to see how science works under pressure. And you've got to see how there really wasn't time to go with peer review. So often librarians say, you know, go to peer review because it's such a good process and It's vetted and, um, you know, there's a bibliography and it's a certain format and it's within a purpose of a journal. And all those things were, um, all those things were necessary. Um, But at the same time, um, there just wasn't time. And there was a public and scientists and my vet friend that all wanted this information um, the next day. Um, The immediacy of this story for solutions and everything else leads to, on one hand, uh, I'll just kind of end on this note, on one hand, mistakes. I mean, Dr. Fauci makes mistakes. Um, The CDC continually makes mistakes, and now their credibility as an agency is being questioned so the scientists that are trusted have to put their reputation out there and real in and take a risk with what the evidence tells them and you I'm a social scientist and I know we do that all the time we take a risk and we have methodologies for following up and verifying what we found Um not as elaborate as science, but I think social scientists do this all the time, especially with statistics and different techniques. But at the same time, you have people of authority, which librarians love to you know, go to an authority. Who's the authority here? And even more recently, um, this idea of um, who, who are, who's privileged, Who is the voice? I mean, if you think of how these terms have evolved over time and how we use them within the field. So you have that that segment, yet at the same time, I'd really be remiss if I didn't say you have all these yahoos putting out misinformation or disinformation on purpose. And um, we decided in our particular series that we wanted to look at mainstream news and mainstream sources, really to reflect that information literacy universe and what happens within that, because it's not talked about a lot. I mean, there, there was so much different scholarly work looking at misinformation. I thought a really interesting question would be, well, what happens to legitimate sources? The New York Times, what happens to them under pressure or Dr. Fauci? Um, inevitably, you're going to make a mistake. And can you walk it back? Is the public patient enough? Is the media patient enough? And what we found was kind of this new patience and really as science was unveiled as a process that's always existed but we never really had the perfect example
0: that's interesting that you brought up about peer review i actually just finished reading a book um by carl bergstrom calling bullshit uh, oh, it's about- he's at u-dub oh yeah and the book was he's amazing high school I, I used to be there he came after i oh I, really yes yeah, it's, it's a great book and i loved what he said about peer review in one section Um, you know, he talks about the limitations of peer review, that we all think that peer review um, resolves all the concerns of papers. But really what it tells us is, you know, that the paper's legitimate in certain ways, right? That it was written in good faith, that Mm -hmm. it carries out their methodologies appropriately, and that the scientific community will take it seriously. And that's it. But if the data that's put in is not good, then the data that comes out is not gonna be good. And how can a peer reviewer, they can't redo all the, the science, they can't they redo never all would, all Because they never have the data set. So right. exactly. yeah, there's a
2: certain a, amount of trust that goes right. with it. I, I don't know if um, he touched on that. I, I found a startling statistic and I won't even attempt to, to guess at it, but it was much higher than you would imagine that every academic paper has X amount of errors. Mm. Um, and statistical errors. And If you think about that and building upon that from one paper to the next, if you have something that's cited all the time, um, how problematic it is. It it is one reason we do mixed methods so that we can keep coming back and verifying what we found. I mean, I'm so neurotic about Mm. the accuracy of PIL reports that I do rerun I, I re, used to really offend people, I think, um, statisticians, I'd say, can you run it again? I mean, this is a really big finding for us, so run it again. You know, can you run it differently? Um, you know, let's see, it, it's gotta be accurate because people will make policy decisions off of it.
1: And that wraps up part one of our two-part episode with Allison Head on the Project Information Literacy COVID Report. Please tune in next week to hear the rest of this interview in part two.